youth camp is not over yet. And you know how we know that? Uh, for one reason, we've yet to announce the final scores and the winning team. So that's coming. That's coming after this. Uh, but we also have one more thing that I believe the Lord wants us to receive. And I know that, you know, when you come to last day, you start to collect your socks from the shower and clothes that you hung out to dry outside and trying to find lost items and pack them up and you can kind of take your your mind and pack it in your bag and send it home already. Uh, let me just encourage you not to do that because uh, I think there's something very important to hear this morning that if, if you can see this, if you can bring it into focus, it, it can change the, the entire trajectory of your life and how you relate to people in this world. So... Um, let's, let's listen in to what God wants to say to us. Um, we've been making fun of different viral trends and the things that tend to scroll across our screen and grab our attention. Uh, a particularly disturbing one that I heard about recently. In fact, I heard there was a, a copycat of this happening in New Orleans is this, this new trend of people going into the grocery store going to the freezer section, taking out Bluebell ice cream, lifting the lid, licking it, sticking the lid back on, sticking it back in the freezer, and then publishing a video of, of what they've done for the internet to see. And of course, revealing the identity, and, and police officers actually put out charges on them to bring them in. I don't know what the actual uh, charge would be. But I do know this. There is a special place in hell reserved for such people who will dishonor ice cream in that way. My goodness. But this is just, this is just one symbol. Right? You know, we, we, I was making fun of Jake Paul with Molly Earhart the other day. I mean, just anytime something's grabbing our eyes, like the lights right now are, um, often it tends to be some, somehow somebody's advancing themselves, drawing attention to themselves at the expense of other people at the expense of the person who buys that ice cream later on. I don't know if you need to hit blackout or... Yeah, there we go. We'll see. That's good. Can y'all see like this? You still with me? I haven't lost you yet, right? All right. So, I want views. I want hits. I want ad revenue. I don't care who gets sick. I don't care who gets diseased from what's inside of my body. Right? It's just a symbol of, of selfishness. And that gets culturally... Reinforced, but you don't need videos like that to be selfish. In fact, it just it comes so easily for us. It comes so easily for me. It, you know, I don't have to think. I don't have to plan to be selfish. I don't have to. I don't have to think. Oh, yeah, I need to remember to take care of myself. You know, I just put myself first instinctively all the time. I'm going to care about. Am I comfortable or not? Am I being noticed or not? That's just where I go. And so when Jesus says, you know, the two great commandments, love God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as you love yourself, that's not, by the way, hey, step one, figure out how to love yourself, and then you'll be able to love other people. That, that people have turned that into that. It's like, I just need to think better thoughts about myself. I just need to love myself better. I just need to have better self-esteem, and then I'll be able to help others. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's taking it as a given. You care about yourself a lot already. You take care of your needs already. Now, I know at youth camp, we see a lot of self-neglect happening. We see 
bodily hygiene being ignored. We see cleanliness, you know, being thrown out the window. Uh, so sometimes we don't really take care of ourselves. You've not been sleeping. Uh, but you've still been focusing on yourself a good bit this week, I'm sure. You've still been concerned. Where's your team in the running, right? Our thoughts still go there automatically. We just attend to our needs. And, and the world around us trains us to build life according to our options, our desires, our preferences, our comfort. We can watch what we want to watch personally. I don't even have to, I don't even have to work with other people in, in the decision-making process of what's the entertainment choice for tonight? I just can go off and do my own thing. I, I, I can self-select anything that I want to interact with and ignore anything that I don't want to have to pay attention to. We were joking last night about certain TV shows that if you grew up in a Christian home, you might not have been allowed to watch. One uh, that originated in my childhood, but is still, it's one of the longest showing uh, animation productions in history, is The Simpsons. Raise your hand if you were allowed to watch The Simpsons growing up. None of you. All right. Raise your hand if you'd watched it anyway. Raise your hand if you don't know what the Simpsons are. If you don't know what the Simpsons are. All right. Well, you're not going to track with this because I, I, I thought that, you know, just, you know who the Beatles are, right? You know, that's not from your generation, right? The, the Simpsons is a whole cultural phenomenon. In fact, it, it's, it's, it's brilliant in all its obnoxiousness. Uh, all right, here's the classic opening scene for The Simpsons, and I'm going to describe it for you. Tony Reinke, in his book, Competing Spectacles, describes it. The opening sequence of The Simpsons is now cultural legend. Parting through clouds to the sounds of a heavenly chorus, we zoom in on Bart scrawling out his latest transgression on a school chalkboard, you know, I will not, and whatever the sentence has to be finished with. The bell rings, he runs outside, jumps on his skateboard with no backpack or books. Next we see overachieving Lisa in an after-school band practice, but her saxophone solo is too much and the instructor points her to the door. She jumps on a bike, rides off with her instrument and a giant stack of books. At the town's nuclear power plant, the workday ends with a horn at which Homer brainlessly drops a tong holding a glowing carbon core which bounces and embeds in the back of his shirt. This glowing thing sticks there as he walks off. He drives off, discovers the uncomfortable nuclear rod. He just throws it, doesn't matter who it's endangering, out the car window. It bounces across the, the sidewalk as Bart dodges it on his skateboard. Next we see Marge and the pacifier sucking... Maggie, check out at the grocery store, then drive home in a screeching, horn-hawking rush. The family races home from every direction. Homer pulls in the driveway first, then Bart skateboarding over the roof of Homer's car. Angered, Homer steps out and lets out a screech ah! as nearly run over by Lisa on her bike. He jumps and squeals again, then sprints inside the house, narrowly escaping, getting run over by his speeding wife, Dope who slams on the brakes to make a skidding stop in the garage. 
In unison, the family sprints, jumps, and squeezes into place on the couch in front of the blue glow of their shared TV, the family's eye pacifier, it seems. We're meant to scroll, we're meant to scoff at this dysfunctional household and the vanity of their daily existence. Man, woman, underachiever, overachiever, toddler, each brainwashed by media, all gathered again before the comfort of their TV. But then, here we are watching them. So what has made the Simpsons blind to one another? Why do they only see through each other? And why do they avoid eye contact? Perhaps with endless offerings of video, our own gaze becomes easily numbed, blank, and bored. In fact, uh, since the 90s, this image now has been updated. Jordan, put the next one up there. That's a little bit more accurate now, right? Not everybody watching one screen, but everybody watching their own preferred screen. We ignore one another. And when we must make eye contact, too often we offer others a disinterested gaze. Maybe our spectacle culture has conditioned us to this place, wooed several gorgeous hours of a day for nothing but our attention. We regard that attention as our chief commodity, our social capital, and we are loath to fritter it. In other words, uh, I know I can only look at so much stuff. And so I'll, I'll pull my eyes away from whatever I really care about to look at you for just a little bit because they're going to go back to what they are glued to. Television alone is worthy of our precious attention and we protect that gaze from others. People become rather boring compared to the enrapturing magic of our screens. All right, people are boring. People that, they're not just in 3D, they're in flesh and blood, they're right in front of us. People that God crafted, God made in his image, he's made them with their own particular talents and skills and personality and uniqueness. They don't, they don't move at the same speed as the stuff that we're used to interacting with. They don't comply with us. They, they, they don't respond based on a click and a command. They don't refresh, you know? Don't you wish you could just hit the refresh button on your parents or your friends? Like, this is lagging, this is lame, refresh, get a, get a new hit on this. Real people don't do that. And yet, so often how we interact with the world has been trained by this culture that says, I get to decide on my terms and according to my schedule who or what I want to have to deal with and when I want to have to deal with them. David Foster Wallace, he was a novelist. He wrote, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. And he wrote that before the smartphone was invented. <laughs> uh, what would he think now, but here's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to have a transformed heart. 
when you love God with heart, soul, and mind and strength, that happens because this, this dead, unresponsive, totally self-interested heart has been changed. It's been replaced. And, and one of the effects of that that comes necessarily is that you care about others. Christians care. We care about more than just ourselves. We, we care about God. He becomes a focus, and he, he leads us to open our eyes. When our eyes have been widened in seeing him, now our eyes can be on other people around us because we're not just living in these narrow blinders that are just making up our own world. Christians have a love that they have received, that they have experienced from God, that we love because we were first loved. Timothy Keller describes what it means when this comes alive in the inside of you, this concern of others. What's this phrase mean? To love your neighbor as yourself means to meet the needs of your neighbor with the same force, joy, speed, and power with which you meet your own. Think about those words. Force, how much I'm going to give to it. Joy, whether or not it's going to be something that I do begrudgingly, I guess so, if I have to. If I have to invite that person, I will. Fine. Or joy, eagerness, happiness about that. Power, I'm going to use my energy. Right, that limited energy that I have, my mind and my strength, my capacities that I'm going to give to God. I'm I'm going to give that to others in the same way that I so often just give it to myself. He says, you put your happiness inside of their happiness so that what makes them happy makes you happy. I told this to the guys after the the Mennonar the other day. One of the products of self-focus is we don't notice when people are hurting or when people have, they've experienced a win in their life. They, they've experienced a victory. So we're not, we're not rejoicing with them. We're not weeping with those who weep or rejoicing with those who rejoice. But, but to be a believer means something inside of you has changed where, where you're not content with that being your pattern. And that's true not just for the people that are like us, but the people that are unlike us. Not just for the neighbor in the sense of they live in your home, they're close by, they're easily accessible, they look like you, they talk like you, they have the same interests as you. And we talked about last night the difficulties that we experience with that. I mean, you know, most of you, you share the same DNA as your parents. All of you, you live in the same home. Right With your family, your siblings, your friends, they've become your friends because you tend to like the same stuff, you're the same age, you're, you're in the same groups socially, and, and we don't know how to manage that. Right? We, we already create problems and conflict, and, and we get messed up because of people that are so similar to us, we can find it sometimes so difficult to love. And Jesus says, that's not enough. I'm not just talking about the people that it's almost like you're looking in a mirror when you speak to them. Not just your, your neighbors that are 
close by, your friends and your family. I'm talking about the lost and the least. Those who are radically different and distant from you. You love them with the same force, joy, and power that you love yourself. The Bible talks about these kinds of people in, in a variety of ways. It, it describes the, the outcast. Right, people that you tend to dismiss, make fun of, they're memeable. Right? They're, they're, they're the group that Pastor Jeff talked about. You publish the picture before you get their permission. Right? They, they become the butt of all the jokes. Or they're just really basic, you know. They're just, they're just a boring blob to you, and so you just don't tend to give them a lot of thought. Or the ones that we tend to fear or judge. The Bible talks about the despised. That's who Jesus has in mind. The weak and the vulnerable. They don't, they don't have the same resources that we have. They don't have the same amount of money. They don't have the same amount of technology. They don't have the same social standing. They don't have a lot that they can use to fight for a place in life that you have. He's talking about them. The stranger and the immigrant. That's the language that scripture uses. That's the language that shows up right in Leviticus 19 when they're first told to love their neighbor as themselves. The poor. Those who doubt. Those who are spiritually not in a good place. The Bible's talking about them too. The wandering, the wayward. The ones who, maybe some of you are like, you know, some people at this camp, they don't care. They don't care about the things of God. They don't really want to worship. They're just here because they want to have fun. And maybe you've been looking down your nose at them a little bit. The Bible's talking about them or the people that would never show up at a place like this because they want nothing to do with that stupid Jesus nonsense that you weird Christian people are going away in some strange camp to celebrate. The unbelievers, the lost, the broken, the confused, they all make the list. Those who are in need of mercy, those who have hurt us and offended us, and, and they've used words, and they've used actions, and they've, they've cut us to the core, and they've become, they become our enemies. They, they've made the hit list. And you're not sure how you're going to hit them, but you just know they're on the list. That's who God has in mind. There's something about when the love of God is in focus, it creates this, this new concern, this caring about the lost and the least. There's this new atmosphere that's authentic, that's generous, that's kind, that's welcoming, that, that reaches toward different people and wants to bring them close and wants to help. And Jesus totally transformed the conventions about this about what it means to love your neighbor. So turn to Luke chapter 10 in your Bible. We're going to read verse 25, 37. 
Verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Put a gold star on his Sunday school chart. He answered correctly. That's what we've been learning about all week. Commandment number one, commandment number two. He sounds them off. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. End of story. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? That's Jesus' question. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This man comes to Jesus, and, and we've seen this happen several times in these gospel stories. And he's got a question, but it's not a sincere question. He wants there to be this intellectual showdown with Jesus, all right? This is the first century version of a rap battle that this man wants to have with Jesus. He wants to test him. He wants to catch him in a trap. He wants Jesus to say something embarrassing. Because there's this new teacher, this new rabbi, Jesus, who's rolled into town, getting everybody's attention. And here you have this other religious expert. And he wants Jesus to say something that would actually contradict what God has already said in the law. Because Jesus has been reaching out and he's been ha hanging out with prostitutes and all these people that, that they were outcasts from society, they were morally bad people, and he wants Jesus to say something about how you can, you can keep being morally bad and God's okay with that. So what do I got to do, Jesus, to get into heaven? Give it to me. 
And, and, and Jesus asks him a question. He does this all the time. He doesn't, he doesn't answer people's questions as they framed them with their own little hidden agendas. He's one of the most brilliant people. Right? If you find Jesus to be boring, slow down and read the Gospels and see how smart he is in how he interacts with people, how he sees right through them. And Jesus lays a trap for him. It's a trap of love. He wants to get him for the right reasons. And so he asks him, well, what, what's the law say? What's the focus? And he gives the answer we've been studying. You, you got to love God. You got to love your neighbor. And then so Jesus says, okay, well, then you already knew the answer. Why are you asking me? Go ahead, do that. You see, this man, he's a rule follower, right? Talked about that last night. He, he, he loves the rules and he wants to make sure Jesus is given the right rules, and he wants to know, hey, well, if I follow this and I follow that, then I'll get into heaven. But the thing about both rule followers and rule haters is both of them find the law to be a constricting rather than a freeing thing. You can love rules or you can hate them, but you both find them to be something that's limiting. It's just the rule follower likes those limits and finds them to be safe to an extent. And the rule breaker is like, no, you're not. You're not telling me what to do. And so he, he sees Jesus just giving this big picture and, and, and not qualifying it, not, not saying except in these instances or here's what that means. Jesus just says, hey, love, love God with every single piece of your existence, every motive of your heart every action of your strength, every will and intention, and use that to love your neighbor with all the intensity that you love yourself. And if you manage to do all of that, yeah, you can get into heaven. Go and do it. And this man's like, slow down, Jesus. It's not that easy. Life is complicated. Life is hard. The, the world is a place that not everybody, not everybody's following God, not everybody's living a clean life. Not everybody is easy to love. Who's my neighbor? You got to be more specific than that, Jesus. You got you to gotta lower the standard in a way that I can manage that. So that I can feel good about me because I'm generous. I donated to charity to help my best friend who needed a little extra money, right? The, the, the Israelite, the person who's just like me, that's who they tended to think of as their neighbor. They were living next door. They were following God. And surely when God says, love your neighbor as yourself, those are the kinds of people that he has in mind. What kind of people do you mean, Jesus? Right? Jesus shuts down the conversation. He drops the mic. And I'm not going to... And, and the man says, no, I'm not done yet. I'm not done talking. And he asks that question. What kind of people, Jesus? Do y'all know Jesus hates that question? Who's deserving of my love? Jesus hates that question and refuses to answer it. And he never does. In fact, he turns the question around at the end. And he doesn't say, what neighbor should you love? But who was a neighbor? Who was, a, who was the right kind of person? And so he tells this, 
story instead. But, but listen to the heart that's in this man, this desiring to, to justify, to prove himself, to feel good about himself, to feel like I'm an acceptable, okay person. That is the heart that is behind all racism that shows up in this story, bigotry, where you, you, there's certain groups of people that you just have a nasty feeling about. They feel gross. They feel icky. Looking down on others. Keeping people out. I don't, we're not going to include them in this game we're playing because then it just would feel like it, the, the coolness factor has just lowered. Why do you do that? Why don't you want the, the person who's got like five more lame points than you do showing up in the circle when y'all are doing something. Because this, this, this was an event that had status. We're all laughing and making the same kind of jokes and now, now somebody else comes around and it's like, we just got downgraded. I don't like the way that feels. What's in your heart? I want to justify me. And Jesus sees that's inside of this man's heart. It's self-righteous. He thinks he's okay, so from his vantage point, he can look down on the other people, and so Jesus lovingly breaks him. Right, this man thought that he was keeping the second great commandment. He thought he was doing that already. Jesus, you, you tell me I got to do number one, number two, got it. All right, I'm good then. Until Jesus exposes. You like that on paper, you like to read that in the law, and you've got that memorized, and you do a good job at that, but you don't really live like this. All right, this is really easy today to, to think that we love people that are different. In fact, part of this message that I'm sharing, our culture likes it. Our culture likes how Jesus is there for the down and out, and, and how you shouldn't be a bigot, and you should be tolerant, and you should be loving and affirming of people from a variety of backgrounds. And, and, and you know, I, I'll notice young people... Uh, jump on some of those trains and, 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 and do the, you know, virtue signal, social media post in favor of some person who's being bullied or picked on and, and they run their own little campaign about how that's a problem. And, and that can make very little difference in your day-to-day -day life and who, what kind of people you talk to. It's really easy to think that we love others on paper or on a screen causes exist left and right today. They're easy to pick up and put down and move on and then not really change much about how you go about life. All right, I'm going to show you a quick sketch from SNL that makes fun of this. Uh, there, there's a certain uh, character that's, that's played on, on the Weekend Update, and uh, she, her, her title is The Girl That You Wish You Hadn't Started a Conversation With At a Party. <laughs> And uh, you're just realizing, oh, this was a bad choice. We got to love those kind of people too. That's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, but but she, uh, she just has picked up one cause after another that she doesn't understand. And she's really enthusiastic about it and critical about people who don't share her same uh, interests. So if you play that for a second, Jordan. Well, there are a lot of holiday parties this season, which means you'll meet a lot of people with a lot of opinions. Here with her opinions is the girl you wish hadn't, you hadn't started a conversation with at a party. Hey, Seth. Welcome back. All right. Well, thank you. So are you excited about the holidays? Excited? I'm repulsed, Seth. 
All this commercialism around Christmas, it's an outrage. It's a tragedy. It's like, what are we even doing? And like, why? And like, don't. Yeah, you really seem like you're in the Christmas spirit. You mean the Christmas spirit? Oh, right. You don't care about Jesus because you worship Hallmark. Oh, boy. You need to wake up and smell the music, Seth. There are homeless people out there who can't even pay their mortgages. Is that what George Washington had in mind when he started America? It's like, read something, Seth. Learn a book. Learn it? Fact. For every five people who are hungry, there are five people who are too full. It's like, switch stomachs. And fact. For every four men, there are two women. And that's just supposed to be acceptable? No. We need bipartisan ships. Bipartisan ships? Like ships that are bipartisan? Like ships that are bipartisan? You need to grow up, Seth. Because there are some people in Africa right now where it's like, no. Also, I'm sorry. Why can't Secret Santa just be openly gay? Like, hello, it's 2010. Hold on. Hold on. This is not my phone. Okay. Stop. Can I do a minstrel show real quick? No. Okay, fine. You're reverse racist. That's even worse. Ingrid. Ingrid. I hate her. Stop. What'd you ask for for Christmas? I don't want to tell you. Would you relax? I'm just asking what you want for Christmas. Okay, well, I was hoping to get the new iPad. I asked for an end to genocide. Oh, come on. Okay. <laughs> So maybe next time you're on your new iPad, look up how to be a decent human being. All right, you know what? Anybody know anybody like that? All right, so that's not the kind of person that we want to become. Uh, But there is a new kind of heart that Jesus is describing here, and it it's easy to think that we've arrived at this when we really haven't. You know, there can so often be a disconnect from the things that we think that we know and what we're actually willing to do. There, there was a, a study that uh, Princeton did where they, they gathered in a few different preachers and they gave them a, an assignment. They were supposed to make a presentation on the Good Samaritan story. And uh, they, they, they kind of had them prepare and they gave them instructions about where to go to find the place and they had to walk down this alley and, and they would pass by on the way someone who, who looked homeless, who looked kind of beaten up and wounded and, and was kind of moaning next to a dumpster and they found that whether or not they told them hey, you're running a little late, would determine whether or not they would stop and show help uh, to the person. And most of them didn't. Most of them didn't take any action to help the person that was the exact same kind of character in the story that they were about to go and preach about, right? We, we can think that we know things, 
and yet it not really make a difference in the urgency of our schedule and our time and the next thing that's, that's coming. And those preachers discovered that. And here in this story, there's a priest and a Levite who do the same thing. They, they pass by this man. They, they must have had some justification for that, something that made sense to themselves, some, some reason that's like, nah, I can't, really, I can't stop, I've got a schedule, I've got, I've got things to do. Uh, or that, that's probably somebody who's not deserving of help, right? They, they run through their, their list, but one way or another, the religious experts who know you shall love your neighbor as yourself totally ignore the man that is in need of help. And, and Jesus is exposing people like the man he's talking to. He's saying, your, your religious energy and care, it, it, it only goes so far as your pet topics, and it doesn't show up in real and difficult action because they had distanced themselves from the heart of God. So that is the self-focused heart. Second, there is a scene of mercy in focus. Right? Jesus describes what it looks like to respond in mercy to a need. And the third man, this Samaritan, arrives. And we'll talk about what it means to be a Samaritan in a moment, but but notice what he does. First, he, he has a certain attitude and a certain action. It says in, in verse 33, he saw him. Or just slow down and think about that. He saw him. He didn't see through him. He didn't look away from him. He allowed this person in his brokenness, in his condition, in, 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 in all the complication that he would bring. He put him in focus and he saw the need. He saw the humanity. And so he noticed the one that was in distress. And then in verse 33, he had compassion on him. So there's something first on the inside of him that, that was moved, that was burdened, that, that felt something for this man in need. Do you know what emotion is most often described of Jesus? It's compassion. We're told again and again, as, as, as Jesus steps into a fallen world and he sees people that are harassed and people that are confused and people that are, that are hurting and suffering and sick and sinful and demonized and, and, and locked inside of themselves and foaming at the mouth and throwing themselves and, and cutting themselves with rocks because they're so messed up and wigged out. The variety of conditions of, of how when, when sin came into the world and we thought we could have freedom outside of God's wise, caring boundaries, it brought misery after misery. And Jesus was moved. He didn't walk in this place keeping his hands clean and staying above the fray and saying, that's a problem, that's a problem, that's a problem. He, he touched the lepers, the, the people who they didn't know any human contact for years and years and years because he cared. 
And, and this, this attitude, it leads to an action. He doesn't just care in the way that the girl you don't want to start a conversation with at a party cares. He did something. Like, right, verse 34, he went to him, and he bound him, and then he set him on his animal, and he brought him to an inn. He took care of him, and on the next, it just doesn't seem to have any limits. It just, it keeps getting added. The next action that he takes, the, 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 the furthering of help that he brings. And this comes at a cost, right? This will always cost you. He spends two denarii. Uh, a denarius was what you would make in one day. How many of y'all have a job? What do you make in one day? What do you think? 50 bucks, all right? So we'll start there. 50 bucks in one day, so 100 bucks in two days. So a denarius is one day's wage, so he spends two days worth of work. And, and not just that, he loses two days of work. So put it at 200 bucks. That's the cost that he spends for a stranger that he sees and cares about. Tim Keller says, the one who showed mercy... The Samaritan risked his safety, right? The, the road that went from, from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was known as the most dangerous road. It, it had this little kind of narrow turn place where it would be very easy for robbers to hide out and, and, and spring upon people and trap them and attack them. And, and this man slowed down and stopped and turned his back to the robe to put his focus on the person in need. And, and all the while, that was risky. He put himself in danger in doing that. He destroyed his schedule. He became dirty and bloody through personal involvement with a needy person of another race and social class. Are we Christians obeying this command personally? Listen, to love your neighbor as yourself will always cost you. you. You'll have to part with something. You'll have to let go of something. You'll have to let go of your comfort. You'll have to maybe let go of your popularity. Because at school, you hang around those losers. You're taking away the time that you can give to the people that make you feel like you are somebody. And then maybe you get talked about and you're like, why are you hanging around with them? something of your kind of social standing gets spent in that moment. You can part with your money. Listen, you are not, you are not too young. And I appreciate some of the families here that have instilled this value here. You, you are not too young. You're starting to make money. Either you got an allowance or you got a job where you spend actual money, dollars and cents, digitally, however you do it, for the poor and for the needy and to give. Do you, do you have that? Do you have any awareness that God might, might call you to, 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 to pay a cost in that way? For people that you might not know, they're, around, they're, they're somewhere else on the planet. But you can make some difference in that child's life, in that person's life. And you might not get some of the stuff that you want to buy. It might take you longer to save up for your merch because it's cost you. All right, 
third and final thought for us. You show what you see. Right? Jesus reverses the question from who is my neighbor to who was a neighbor to the man in need. Not who do I have to love, but who do I need to be? Jesus is telling this man implicitly, you need to be fixed. You need, you need to be changed. There's a problem with you. Something inside of you is dead and needs to come alive. You need to be a neighbor. Go and do that. Jesus is, is, is intentionally, he, he wrote this story with shock value to illustrate this, this point. He, he actually, in asking the question, who was a neighbor, he forces him to recognize the hero of the story. And notice how he answers. He doesn't say, the Samaritan. He doesn't even use that word. He's like, uh, the one who showed mercy. He finds some roundabout way to describe it. Because it's like he can't even come to say, the Samaritan was the hero. Right? You and I are so used to hearing good Samaritan that that just sounds normal. Like, I guess Samaritans are just good, you know? Uh, you name hospitals after them. Good Samaritan Hospital. Uh, that's not the way that Jews thought about Samaritans. When, when Jesus said, and this third character came, the crowd started booing, boo, get him off the stage. They would have thrown stuff at him. They, they hated Samaritans. Right, talk about viral trends. Doxing the Samaritan would have happened in this day. Right? They, they, they want nothing to do with them. In fact, Jews would, would have crossed the Jordan River twice rather than have to go through Samaria, Samaria once to get to where they wanted to go. They, they would avoid them. Not just out of convenience, because it was inconvenient. They avoided it out of principle. They wanted nothing to do with such people. They hated them. They, 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 they were the wrong race. So there's racial tension happening here. There's religious tension here. Those Samaritans, they don't believe the right stuff. They're our enemies. Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't say, there was a, there was a Samaritan who got hit, hit over by robbers and was knocked down and bleeding in the road, road. And along came a priest and a Levite. And then along came a righteous Jew who saw the Samaritan and said, I'll help you. And then everybody can applaud that even he learned to love somebody that was different from him. He could have told the story like that. And, and the principle of you need to love the Samaritan, you need to love the different, would have still been made. He doesn't do that. He, makes, he takes the enemy and, and puts him in the role of the Savior. And he takes this man... And he casts him essentially as the guy who's beat up and broken on the road. And he says, you're, you're bruised and you're hurt and your money is gone and you are dying. And your enemy walks by. Would you hope that he would help you? Even from one that is so different and so unlike you. Because what he wants this man to experience is to see, and that's who you are. You, you, you are poor. You are lame. You've got nothing to bring before God. 
you, you needed mercy from someone you had made your enemy. That's true of you and me. Do you, do you see that? The, the more that you slow down, we talked about this first night, and pay attention, you have a heart, you have a soul, do you listen to what's inside of your soul? Do you see how in a moment you'll neglect God? In a moment you'll, you'll put him as a distant second. And you will build your life about other stuff and serve your idols and, and live in a way that has zero concern for what he has to say about stuff. You make God your enemy and, and you can never, no matter how many of the 613 commandments you get right, fix that. You could never love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength or love your neighbor as yourself. And this man needs to realize that. You are poor and your enemy came and saw you and was moved with compassion with you and, and at his own cost, at his own sacrifice, at his own injury, brought you home. And that's what Jesus has done. And until you see that, and, and until you not just know that, like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it's great. Until you put it in focus, you won't show it. So Jesus says, the one who showed mercy, you do that. You, you show it. You can't show something you don't see. That's what I, I pray. God, help me, to, help me to see how much I needed your mercy. Help me to see how much I've, I just am a mess. I just bring complication to everybody else's world. I'm a liability to the people around me and to you. But you've changed my story. And suddenly those who are very different from me are, are not so different after all. Because we're all needy and together have been enemies of God. All right, what's it look like to show mercy here? Timothy Keller says, we're called to both gospel messaging and gospel neighboring. So first, gospel messaging. Earlier in chapter 10 of Luke, Jesus had sent out his disciples. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Right? The, the, one of those definitions of focus Center of attention, of attraction, of emphasis is also, it's the place of origin for an earthquake. And, and that's, that's what God intends our lives to be. He does something in us that's transformative and, and, and we're, we're God's kind of missional epicenter. We're, we're, we're the place of, of origin for an earthquake to go out into this world and for shock waves to be felt. There, there's, there's to be a disturbance in your schools, in your families, in your neighborhoods, in society around us. We're not supposed to just fit in and everybody's comfortable and has their same footing because we're after about all the same things. We're, we're to affect and disturb the people and the places around us. And when God is in focus, that's what happens. And when people are in view, we come and we bring 
our message and we bring our lives to them. And we do need to bring our message to them. And sometimes that can feel, right, among your generation and even among mine a little bit, that feels weird. I mean, it's always been hard to share the gospel, to evangelize. But, but you live in, in, a, in a culture that wants to celebrate everybody's individual version of how they want to do life and spirituality and what works for them and what feels meaningful and what gives them hope to face tomorrow. And, and, and they're posting some vague spiritual ideas on their social media of what's, what's helping them and giving them peace and comfort. You don't want to go in there and say, hey, you know what, you're wrong. You know, to, to tell them that they need to change what they believe and believe one thing, that there's only Jesus who can be in focus and rescue you because whether it's your vague spirituality or it's your meditative practices or it's you thinking that you're a good and okay person, none of that's going to work because you can't keep any of it. And all it does is just add burden and demand to your life. But it feels weird. It feels unaffirming to say, you know what, here's the truth. And what you believe, you've got to abandon that. Because it's just sinking you down and sending you to hell. You guys, think with me for a moment and feel with me for a moment. There are people who the things that they're adding to their life that they think will help them and they think will fix them, are burdening them down and sending them to hell because they do nothing to fix their relationship with the one that in their soul they have made their enemy. What's that sound like to you? Does it sound like I just said something really weird? Because part of loving God with our minds means we come into agreement with that. God, you give me truth. And as strange as it feels to say that in this world, I believe it. And then loving God with our hearts means, now let me feel it. And loving God with our strengths mean, with our strength means, and now I'm going to do something different about it. I believe it, I feel it, and I will decide pursue people. Jesus wants the people around you that do not yet know him. Are we saying a song earlier that said the grace of God has reached for me. That, that's how he's come to us. And, and grace reaches often through people. Grace reached you, maybe through your parents. Grace reached you through the, the church or through pastors or through leaders. And God is saying, your arms are arms of grace that I'm going to use to reach and grab people that I want. The question is, do you want them? Do you want them? Do you want them for God? Do you want them in here? Do you want them with all their messiness and complication in ways that they're different and weird and they don't talk like us. You want them? I pray that God would give us a heart to, with courage and to face difficult and awkward moments and wisdom to navigate how to do that. But he has sent us into this harvest 
John Bloom says, if we're not feeling anguish over people's eternal state and ordering our lives around praying for and trying to find ways to bring the gospel to them, we are being lulled to sleep by the devil's soothing strains. Christians care. Christians care about suffering. And, th and that's popular today, to care about suffering. What's less popular today is to care about something called hell. I love the way that John Piper puts it. Christians care. They, they, they seek to relieve all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Both matter to us. People who are hurting in their bodies here and now and need help and people who are facing an eternity in the isolation when we are made for God, we are made to be near to him and they will be away from him forever. And God is saying, care. Finally, gospel neighboring. Gospel neighboring means making our lives available to people. I just want to give you three phrases. They're not in your notes. I'm just going to end with this. Three things that as you open wide your heart and your life to the different that will mean, right? They, they are learn empathy, hate bigotry, and practice hospitality. So write those down. Learn empathy, hate bigotry, and practice hospitality. So first, we, we learn empathy. Learning empathy. Em empathy is this. Empathy is the ability to, I don't know exactly what you're going through because I haven't had that same experience, but I can feel how you feel. I can understand what it might like to be in your situation. Empathy is something we hardly ever do well today. So many people don't know how to empathize. In fact, in our culture, it trains us just to treat people like a soundbite that you either accept or reject, that you either post in favor of or against, and there's no real human person behind it. And in fact, brain researchers have said, just the, 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 the neural firings that happen, have to happen inside of you in order to, to, to have empathy, they're very slow processes. They take, they take a piece of your mind. They take your attention. They take you th considering and thinking, if I were facing that, if, if my family had done that, if I had suddenly had to move, if I suddenly had my best friend do that to me, or if, if something totally different, if I were living in that condition or living with that addiction or going through that divorce, what would that feel like? You might give five seconds to that and then you pull this out and there's another distraction that steals that thought away, which is why we don't do empathy well. And the reason why you don't know how to fix your friendship conflicts is you don't do empathy well. You don't, you don't place yourself in, let me get outside of my perspective for a second and turn the tables and face them and think, what's it feel like to be you? How are you hurting in this? Not just how did you wrong me and how you deserve to be where you're at, what are your fears? Why does it feel so hard to be you and to take the next step? Where do you lack faith for that? You've got to slow down 
and pay attention to that or you will never know how to manage relationships. And, and you will do that to your spouse one day because you'll be so locked into how you feel and how you feel right and how you feel hurt and you can't understand at all why, why they are waiting for you to apologize and you are clueless to that. That's hard. Guys, learn how to pay attention to people now. Learn how to see what it might feel like to be in their situation with their background and their needs. I was talking with uh, Israel Griffin yesterday. Israel, where you at, man? I can't see in the dark. All right, right there. And uh, he gave me permission to share this. And and one of the things that he had mentioned was, because he was talking about relating with his parents, and he said, uh, you know, I was always wondering, why are my parents so hard on me? Why, why are they always, you know, making sure I do everything right, everything right? And I was, I was getting angry about those rules and the way that they regulate stuff. And then I realized that, that we have to make sure we're always doing it right because, because people will, will think, think bad of us automatically and think bad of the people that are like us. And I was like, Israel, do you, do you mean because of your race? Do you mean because you're black? That it feels like you always have to be on your A game because people will already look down on you and expect you to be lazy or expect you to mismanage life or expect your family to blow up because of your skin color? And he said, yeah, that, that's what I mean. Can we just slow down and recognize... 99% of us in this room don't know that experience. You know what it's like to have expectations from your parents. You have that in common. You don't know what it's like to have this social noise of, of perceiving that there's, a, there's an extra layer of criticism that you are facing because of the color of your skin. Do you you slow down and think about what it might be like to live in a setting or with a background or with ethnic realities that are different from your own and, and then you care? And then you're able to love people that are different, that don't share the same history with you Pray that you would feel people's suffering, that you would feel their sin and how it twists them up inside of themselves and grieves God. We just, we go through headline after headline and, and, and things just get lost in all of that. And so it, it's just real easy to kind of be unaffected, unmoved. Somehow, somebody's life has been blown up, physically or spiritually. And it's just the latest news item to us. Maybe even if you know the person, maybe they're in the church, maybe they're a friend. And it's like, oh gosh, man, they wrecked their life. Look at this verse from Jeremiah 9.1. It's not in your notes, but Jeremiah 9.1. He says this, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I may weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah is saying, God, 
give me tears. And he's saying, my, my, my tear ducts, they're running out. I, I need more. I'm just, I've been feeling day and night the grief and the exile that your people, because of their rebellion and their idolatry and their hardness of heart, are right now experiencing. I feel their suffering. You, you, you realize who you are. You, you don't just have a personality. You don't just have, this is just who I am, you know. Nothing happens. I don't cry about people. I just don't feel it that way. I just don't have that same, I just don't melt and fall apart. Maybe that's because you think you're tough. Maybe that's just because it's just your wiring. It's not what you do in your family. Some of y'all have family of, families of criers and like y'all are all hugging each other and crying all the time and that's not my background. Uh, listen, you can focus on things and change. And you can pray, God, help me. Help me to feel what people feel. Help me to grieve about things that grieve your heart. Help me to have compassion and holy tears over sin and suffering. You pray that over time, you bring that into focus over time, you will not be the same kind of person. And you'll find that you love your neighbor. Learn empathy, hate bigotry. Right? Any self-righteous looking down, making fun of people in a way that's to advance you or somebody else, any kind of racial joking, even, even lifestyles and, and uh, people pursuing things that God has said are off limits. Right? How, do you, how do you manage LGBT issues in your school, in the, in the world around us? Right? Believing young people don't do that well. I, I, I see two kinds of patterns tending to take place. One is I'll post the rainbow colors because that's just what you do these days. And, and I'll see people, and I'll see people in, in the youth group, I'll see people that I know, or people that I've, I've known and pastored, and they're, now they're in college, and they, they, might not, they might not be openly publishing that kind of stuff, but I'll see them liking posts that are, that are promoting Pride Week and promoting... You know, it, 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 the, the love wins concept of who you love and who you sleep with and who you have a relationship with is for you to determine. Double tap. Something that Jesus has died for. Right, that, that's, that's one problem. We can't lose our convictions. We can't surrender our minds and our beliefs to this culture. But then I'll, I'll see other people that are, sometimes maybe you're younger, sometimes maybe you're homeschooled, that doesn't, that's not exclusively the case for you, but you haven't had to learn how to be a classmate with somebody who's questioning their gender identity. And so it's just real easy to just feel that, that, that that's gross, that's, that's stupid. 
and, and you just are, there's this quick dismissal and honestly self-righteous hatred for people that are struggling in those categories. And that is totally out of place for someone who cares and loves those who are different from us. I right, finally practice hospitality. Hospitality means literally opening up your home. Jen Wilkins says, perhaps the most powerful evangelistic phrase you can teach a child is, do you want to come over to my house? And I love the families who do this. Invitations to join the family of God often begin with invitations to join your family at the dinner table. Hospitality is so rare these days. If we raise hospitable children by modeling hospitality in our own home, then we develop a culture of invitation among our family. You could do that now with your home, and and you can be right now. Again, this is what I'm saying. What you learn here, if, if, if you can file this and you can pray about this and you can bring this into focus, this, this, will, this will shape your patterns and planning for when you have a family one day. Learn now how to include others so that one day you can bring them to the table and maybe God will bring them to faith because you're okay with people that are messy and different and don't believe what you believe sitting next to you and passing the bread. But there's a variety of ways to show hospitality. I was, I was talking with the Herbosky girls and with the camp director here about foster care because they have uh, Crossroads NOLA is actually going to be doing a day uh, retreat here. And some of your, your families have, have pursued that. We're, we're, we're going to take our, our space. We're gonna, I'm going to go and, and share a bedroom with my sibling that I can barely get along with anyway because we're going to w- welcome somebody else into our house. And, and, and they're coming with their own attitude issues and complications that we have to figure out how to manage and love. But we are taking them in as different as they are they come from a background, maybe from a different race, maybe from a, a family that's faced issues of, a, of addiction or abuse or things that we've, we've not had to manage personally, but we're going to learn them and we're going to learn how to love them and we're going to bring them into the close places of life. But you, you can show hospitality just in how you're postured to people. Who are you welcoming? Like literally, who do you say hi to? Who do you go to? Who would you focus on this week? Who do you focus on when you show up on a Wednesday night? You show up to church on Sunday morning. You show up at your school. Who are you paying attention to? Who are you bringing in? You can't, you can't be everybody's best friend. Right? That's not, the, the, the point isn't abandon your best friends and just have this like equal, vague, peanut butter relationship with everybody. You can't do that. But there are people you can bring in that may be you've found it easy to ignore because you don't like them or they're just weird. They're just hard to have a conversation with. They, they, they stumble over themselves and even just trying to talk to them and it's like work. I learned early on in doing ministry, there are certain people that I would talk to that talking with them and drawing them out and just making sure they were having a good time felt like I'm pushing a boulder uphill and you're not helping me at all. And if I stop pushing, it's just going to roll right over me, right? People don't always know how to do that. And it's just really easy to, I'm not going to start up a talk with them anymore. Uh, you know, kind of like the girl at the party, I wish I were done with this. Um, 
who do you who do you reach out to and approach and initiate their inclusion? That's what Jesus is talking about here. All right. Ben, you come back up, man. Let's stand together.